Welcome to Rebuilders. Today, my name is Daniel and I'm here with Mark. Um, and I'm not Liddy. You're not Liddy. I'm not Liddy. Where, where is she today, Mark? What's she up to? Well, she's not on a holiday. No. Um, she's actually in the other, our other building. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she's uh, working away at uh, preparing for uh, our 24-7 prayer national gathering. So, yeah. um, uh, as many listeners will know, my, my wife, um, Trudy, is the national director of 24-7 Prayer Australia. Mm. Uh, but as also many uh, listeners know, uh, Trudy was diagnosed with cancer and um, is currently undergoing treatment. So um, we've sort of stepped in because yeah. we felt a real sense of um, we'd been planning. We hadn't um, sort of put a lot of the nuts and bolts together, but had been planning for a national gathering. Uh, and um, we just really felt, you know, the Lord encouraging us to continue pushing forward with that, you know. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so we were working away at that and Lydia is currently doing work on that. Uh, but on yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's actually for those who are interested in, uh, if you're like in Australia, New Zealand, um, it's going to be on the 13th and 14th of October mm-hmm. here in Melbourne. We've got uh, Pete Gregg, Rachel Hughes, other speakers to be announced soon. Uh, and we're really looking forward to, you know, praying together, pushing into what God is doing in prayer here in Oz yeah, yeah. and uh, contending for God to move in our nation. Yeah, so good. Um, so thank you, Liddy. You may have today to focus on that. <laughs> um, all right. So we, um, we're we going to jump back into the conversation we've been having over the last couple of episodes. Um, but I thought just given it's been two weeks since we last recorded, mm. can you just give us a quick kind of summary of – I suppose some of the language you've been using around neoliberalism, the third individualism, yeah. um, and also second secularism. What's yeah. kind of a helpful snapshot? <clears throat> yeah. So, um, you know, this sort of began with the question that something has changed in people in the last 30 years. Mm. And uh, we began with a, a quote around that, that the kinds of people that we're encountering are different. And that presents different challenges around discipleship, pastoral care. What is it to do church? And so the sort of thread we've been examining is what are the effects of the sort of economic order that we've lived on for the last 30 years, uh, neoliberalism, uh, had on on that? You know, how has yeah. it changed people? And this is not just a Western phenomenon. Neoliberalism is an economic order that's, you know, affected large parts of the globe. In many ways, it's not just an economic order, it's also a political order. And so we looked at that sort of rise from when the economy hit some sort of crisis in the 1970s, you saw this new order come, an older idea but came into vogue with people like Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, yeah. and, uh, and really has you know, been the sort of dominant sort of way of looking at the world, arranging the world, arranging the economy, arranging society, um, but it's starting to run aground a little bit. So that's the first big idea. The second big idea was that uh, this has created a morphing, a changing, an evolution of individualism and yeah. modernity began with the first individualism which was really people arranging themselves in new ways as they found freedom as we move from a feudal society in times like the 1600s the 1700s and how people created new mediating institutions which uh, uh the church was part of that yeah, yeah. we've talked about wesleyan's disciple wesley's discipleship systems was a response to the newfound freedom and mobility that people had in the society and social movement um, we then talked about the second individualism, which is mm-hmm. the idea that the second individualism was really defined by people trying to escape those mediating institutions of the first individualism of defining themselves. No longer were they defined by the cohort that created as they found new freedom. They were running from the cohorts. And yeah. Yeah. it was all about, you know, sort of almost a very sort of energetic, vigorous, self-creative, expressive individualism. 
But then we argued that there's actually something new happening. We're entering into this sort of third or what I called crisis individualism where it's falling over. Mm. People are finding mm. themselves uh, almost exploited um, by the economic forces, the digital uh, uh, sort of like farming of people's emotions and likes yeah, and yeah. clicks. Um, and then we talked about another idea, which, you know, introducing lots of new ideas here, um, but it was the idea of a second secularism, the idea that the first secularism, which rose with the modern world of the Enlightenment, was that rationality, reason, science uh, was a project to De disenchant, de disenchant the world of, of religion, superstition. So we've thought about secularism in that manner. Yes, and that's yes. a very true reading yeah. of what the project has tried to do. Um, of also re removing religion from the public square, um, which is almost that sort of French idea of secularism. Hmm. But I talked about a second secularism, and a second secularism is when the market or the economy disenchants everything. So all of a sudden, romance is no longer, you know, there were things which as, as religion disappeared, there were still these things which were almost counter to the enlightenment, such as music, art, romance, um, nature. These things were still sort of like touching some sort of deep religious meaning in us. But even those things now are being disenchanted that dating apps, uh, pornography, um, our interactions with each other are almost like contractual mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So a lot of people have been aware of the first secularism, but we haven't been a a aware of what the second secularism is doing to us as a society and as a church. So there's your summary. Yeah, and just, just a quick one. Would you say the second secularism and the third individualism have kind of come about at similar time? Yes. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. So and the, that's in like the last five, was it 2016, <laughs> you kind of, if you were to put a rough yeah. date on it. Well, I'd say you could go a little bit earlier okay. with, I think, the disenchantment of, of, of the market. But I think I'm noticing with when it comes to crisis individualism, and maybe crisis individualism is a result of the second secularism is perhaps a better way to put it. Um, so I yeah, think, yeah, okay. it's the fruit of it. Right, okay. Great. That's, that's really helpful. Um, so what we want to do today is drill, on, drill in on something that you've – talked about in both these episodes and you've even just kind of expressed a little bit there. Um, the way that the market or the economy has influenced this and, and perhaps mm. instigated some of this mm. change and, and, and shift. Yes. Um, you were in the UK recently. Yes. Um, and I believe you have a fantastic metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> to, yeah, yeah. To help us explore this further. Well, yeah, a couple of months ago I was in, I was in London and um, I had – Often I, you know, when you fly that 25, 26 hour flight, you know, give yourself a day to adjust and walk around in the sun. And, and I walked around London and sort of just something sort of like dawned on me, which I think might be a helpful metaphor to understand yeah, some yeah. of what we're talking about here. And I think this relates to how we understand the church's role when it looks at society. And, um, and then we'll sort of follow that into what it looks like for the individual. Right. But if you look at London, and, and London, I'm not saying this is specific for British people, English people, people who live in London. I think I'm using London as a metaphor, which is going to relate to all of our societies, and we realize there's a wide-ranging audience. Hmm. But if you look at our societies, they're very much defined by centers of power over time. Centers of power create orders, they create eras, and they define how we think about the world and how we, society is arranged. And if you go for a little stroll, like I did through London in the sun, uh, one of the sort of centres that you'll notice is one of the oldest uh, centres of power in, in Britain, which is the palace. Hmm. Buckingham Palace, tourist, uh, you know, hotspot in London. And, you know, very much there was a stage when Britain was a series of 
different small kingdoms. Yeah. Uh, but then you had this centralization of power under the king. And what that represents is the sort of traditional understanding of power and the social arrangement. In some ways, that goes back to that feudal arrangement of society. So if you thought, imagine you're drawing on a, a whiteboard here, a little map, and uh, you're putting your centers of power in society. And so the first one you can draw, you can draw a crown, you can draw a palace. But the first center of power, which you see represented, which has shaped us, is the uh, the palace, the crown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you go for a, a little further walk, you know, you'll see another significant uh, structure um, in in Britain and uh, in London. Sorry, it was built by you know Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of London in 1666, and it's a magnificent uh, church <coughs> known as St Paul's. Yeah, and that represents another source of power. And so Christianity came to Britain, and um, you know came quite early. And uh, but you've also seen the power that the church has had throughout history, and uh, the church has been something. And for you know a significant period there, it was a centralised church, and there was the dominant church. And then you had a conflict. So what you see is often our cultural stories and how societies are shaped are by clashes between different power yes, sources. Yes, yes. So you know, think of King Henry and his battle over wanting to you know get a divorce and the church established in Rome not allowing that. Yep. And you have a battle between the crown and the church. And this is a battle which raises all kinds of issues like, you know, what is the role of the church? Is the, is the state or is the, sorry, is the crown subservient to the church or is the church I would say, you know, so there's this whole political drama that plays yeah, out. I'm not yeah. going to go into that. You can read your history books. But uh, so there's two power centers and already we see that there's clash between them. Then in the 1600s, you had uh, another clash in London. If you walk around, you'll see Parliament, Westminster. And what that was, was the voice of the people, the sense that the population felt that they didn't have a say, in particular, it was people who held land. And as the modern world moved from the feudal society and people could gain land and so on, you had people wanting to assert the voice of the people. If if the the crown represents the voice of the ruler, yep, yep, the, okay. the the and the and the aristocracy and the traditional order, yep. um, and the church represents the voice of God, parliament or congress or senate or whatever it is in your country, if you live in a democracy, represents the voice of the people. Yep. And so in the 1600s, we had a civil war between the crown and, the, and parliament and another battle. <laughs> and uh, you had um, uh, basically... Uh, this this clash and it was a civil war and for a period there the king or King Charles I was executed and you had Oliver Cromwell uh, who ran England as a, as a republic yes and also created then sort of freedom of religion and so people who are Protestants and dissenters they called them uh, this was also when Judaism was allowed back into Britain I think this is also around the time that people started printing the Quran yeah. uh, you see people practicing sort of almost quasi-pagan, you know, paganish religions and and so on. So uh, what you have here is then so much of, the reason I'm pointing out these three centers of power, and I'll just go through them again. You've got the crown representing the traditional order and yeah. power, church representing the voice of God or established religion, and then you've got parliament representing the people. And so much of our understanding then is how does the church fit into this constellation of power? So, you know, uh, the United States then begins, and in many ways the United States, you would say, is actually the Republican tradition that comes out of Britain established in a new place in the colonies there. 
And, uh, you know, they put up things like the separation of church and state. Yeah. Uh, they obviously don't have a king. But then there's this pressure on uh, the president. So they almost are in this phase. So it's probably, you know, like they have this phase where the president almost has some king-like powers against, you know, Congress or the Senate. So, so much of history is the battle between these three centers of power, the voice of the people, the voice of God, the voice of the natural order or power. Yes, yes. You know, you look at Iran. Iran um, had a Shah. You know, and then you had the return of the Ayatollah Khomeini, who comes in for France in exile, and all of a sudden religion's the dominant power. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you look at January the sixth and some of the sort of battles that's happened in American politics in recent times. It was almost the sort of king-like executive power of the president against the power of the legislature. So this is the drama which we've lived in, and so so much of our thinking when it comes to churches, well issues of freedom of religion or issues of the state's influence on yeah, yeah, um, yeah. in Britain it could be around you know at the moment with King Charles the first uh, sorry third uh, coming to power well what's King Charles as the protector his role as the monarch is the protector of the uh, sort of Anglican Church and defender of the Protestant faith uh, what does that happen when he's sort of a little bit of a new ager <laughs> to yeah, put it that way yeah, or, yeah. or you know like he's sort of got this much more eclectic spirituality or religious viewpoint. Uh, but uh, there is a new situation hmm. and almost all of our sort of political theology has, has worked in the balance, balance, counterbalance, clashes between all of those groupings. That's how we tend to imagine uh, our cultural understanding. And, yes, yes. you know, so like so there's some people who feel like, you know, that, yeah, there should be this link between the state and uh, uh, the church. You know, so you have people talk about things like Christian nationalism. Yes, yeah. You know, or in England, you have people talking about, you know, the, the ongoing role of the Anglican church and the established order, the crown. Okay, but what I realised is if you walk around London, there's a fourth centre of power. Dum-dum-dum. Hmm, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, you know, so when you say the city of London, um it actually means two different things. And there's the city of London, which we know is the sprawling metropolis that sits on the Thames. Uh, but technically the actual city of London is quite small. And so a lot of places that you may have been if you live in London or you visited London are not actually technically the city of London. The city of London refers to, in a sense, the, the sort of area that is contained as traditional walls. And as many cities have grown, as Melbourne's grown, like we just got bigger and bigger than Sydney because we just said that, that new Auburn's urban sprawl out there. Yes, welcome. Yeah. Oh. Good on us. I uh, just you need to put in some sound effects of like crowds cheering at this point and uh, fireworks. Um, we grew bigger than Sydney because we basically moved the boundary. <laughs> and so that new sort of sprawling uh, exurb, outer suburb is now part of Melbourne. So cities tend to grow as they grow in size, yeah. but that's not what's happened in London. And so when you say the city of London, you can mean that big sort of metropolis on the Thames or you, what really it means is the political entity that is known as the city of london which has its own assembly yeah, yeah which yeah. has its own mayor so sadiq khan is the mayor of london boris johnson was the mayor of london but they're the mayor of greater london yes yeah yeah you're looking this up yeah, yeah fact checking me as we speak um so the city of london actually has its own assembly and huh. you can visit that and there has i think they're like aldermen and it's made up of this all these fascinating medieval uh guilds like the fishmongers and stuff like this and so they vote but also it's this financial hub. So as the modern age begins, this financial hub um, of trade, and in many ways, um, this also follows on from uh, 
you know, when England is a republic and you've got the Dutch Republic as well. And so this creates really the beginnings of global capitalism as we understand it. You have the Royal Exchange there, um, yep. so which is, uh, you can visit. You've got uh, the Bank of England. So if you go to this mansion house, which is where the mayor of the city of London is, so there's this other center of power, but its power is, is ultimately around money and the market. Yeah, okay. Now, interestingly, okay. the city of London has um, ambassadors, like it sends to other places. And, you know, I think it's a little bit apocryphal, this, this but apparently the, the queen has to ask permission for the alderman to enter into the city of London. Oh, right. Huh. Don't know how, oh yeah, I mean, this thing, there's debate about whether that's true, but it is a significant political force and a huge part of Britain's GDP is actually just done in the city of London. Yeah. And okay. so this is why when Brexit happened, you know, it, people were, you know, worried about the future of the city of London. And, you know, particularly as the modern world and the British Empire grew, the city of London was this financial hub. The city of London planted, uh, started Wall Street, I think started the Hangxi in, in Hong Kong. So you can see the seeding of global capitalism. There's a fascinating book I have it here in front of me by William Dalrymple called The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. I read that um, recently. And that tells the story that um, really these global corporations that merged out of the city of London and then they went. So a lot of the colonization of India actually doesn't begin really by the crown uh, or parliament. It's actually a company, the yeah, East India yeah, yeah. Company, yes. who had their own army. And when they got to India, the sort of forces they battled there were the Mughal Empire, who were actually a foreign occupying force that had come down from Afghanistan, an Islamic uh, force who actually had colonized large parts of India. And so you've got this weird thing of this sort of corporation going out of the city of London, ending up in India, and then sort of modeling the way that they operate off the sort of imperial structure of this conquering Islamic army of the Mughals in India. So you see this fascinating dynamic where you've got this cross-border translocational new force in the world that's driven by money. So what the city of London represents is the power of global capitalism. Hmm. And even now with their weird structure of voting in their assembly, some of the votes are actually given by big banks like Goldman Sachs. So you walk around, all the world's big banks are there. And, and it represents the fourth center of power. So the story that we've been telling in this podcast is look, or looking at or examining the story is the examining the story of neoliberalism. So neoliberalism in a sense is, you know, comes out of the city of London and obviously Wall Street. So there was almost a shift of power or a balance of power, you know, particularly around World War I, World War II, Great Depression yeah, yeah. Um, from the city of London to Wall Street. Wall Street's probably more powerful now, but the city of London is still powerful. And there's a huge linkage between the two. Um, and then even if you go to Hong Kong, that's the establishment of global capitalism in China, mm. which is really interesting. Mm. So the story of the world, a lot of what is being told is actually about this in its power. But the city of London doesn't advertise its power in the same way. Like I think it's only yeah. like, like 5,000 people live there or some tiny amount of people live there, but then hundreds of thousands come in and work there. But it's almost the hidden power, thus we haven't noticed it. So if you've got four power, four sets of power now, and again, too, this is not just London, this is America, this is New Zealand, this is this is all over the world. This could be, you know, Norway, you know, these powers of the crown or traditional power and traditional order, religion, mm -hmm. the state, the voice of the people. So uh, let's go through the voices. You've got the voice of power, the voice of the monarch, the voice of tradition. Then you've got the power, the voice of religion, the voice of God. Yep. Then you've got um, the voice of the people, but here's the voice of the market. Yeah, yeah. And its power has been mass massively under, under examined. Why? 
Look, I think part of it too is we had a Cold War where people thought any, if you talk about any questions like this, you're, you're doing communism or Marxism. Sure. I mean, this is, this, we're just more looking here at the historical forces that shape. And um, so I think this is a really important insight because what has happened is, as I said, there's been different battles for power between these two centers of power. But what's happened is the city of London slash global capitalism has won. Yeah, okay. It is now the most dominant force is in that, the world. Is that a recent, like, would you say that's happened more recently or is it, or is it you kind of talked about it being a hidden power? Like what's your- I mean, people would debate this yeah. um, and there'd be people who take that much earlier. But I think what we can say is during the neoliberal period, particularly the last 30 years, the, the market and, and the power of, uh, the, let me just look at the power of Wall Street in US politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you look at the fact that a lot of people on the Democratic left and the Republican right, they may disagree and, and Americans may feel they're more politically polarized than ever before, but all of them are deeply entrenched to Wall Street. Yeah. And even a figure like Steve Bannon, you know, who's sort of like uh, seen as against the order and, you know, or, or Trump talking about the deep state, or even those on the left who sort of see themselves as people on the left in the Democratic Party. They're still all speculating on the stock market. Steve Bannon was a Goldman Sachs trader. Donald Trump was, a, a, you know, a real estate developer. Uh, you've got multiple Democratic senators who've got huge investments in Wall Street. Um, so it's almost the power behind the power. And yeah. what I'm not saying here is, you know, I'm not making some Davos. You know, there's reptilians behind, you know, like this sort of argument. But but what I am saying is, I think we particularly as the church, we, we've not thought about the effects of mm -hmm. what this looks like. I mean, we'll get into the church in a second, but just purely, so for example, recently Liz Truss uh, won prime ministership and her uh, counselor checker, Kwasi Kwarteng, basically proposed a quite radical sort of economic way forward, which they felt was gonna deal with Britain's um, sort of economic um, malaise. And she lost prime ministership within days yeah. because effectively what happened was the city of London was like, no, we're not doing this. They didn't, they didn't like then storm down to parliament and, you know, like get their army. There would have been phone calls to people in the Conservative Party. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden we have a leadership spill and we have Rishi Sunak, who's, you know, very much from this world <laughs> of the city of London, is now the Prime Minister. Yeah. And that just shows the power. Uh, and even in Australian politics, the, the power we've seen recently of these large global consulting firms like PricewaterhouseCooper and McKinsey, you know, you see this. And even in the fact in the Ukraine war, the, the influence in some of these companies we've talked about of, you know, Blackstoning, people getting like deals to do the rebuilding afterwards. And again, I'm not making some massive comment here or conspiracy theory about, um, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine war. But I am more saying... All I'm saying is the power of these large corporations is significant in the world. And in a sense, the city of London won. Yeah, okay. And I think what strikes me is like you, you think about, go back to our whiteboard with the th traditional three centers of power yeah. or two, depending how far back yeah. you go, whatever. Um, where And you kind of use the language there, the voice of that, that those voices are telling a story. They're yes, providing yes. a narrative for the subjects, the yes. the, the individual to yes. to understand the context they're living in, the culture, mm. who they are, sense of identity, all these mm. kind of things. So if you've got that, those powers that have kind of been battling away for mm. many centuries, but then you've got this other power that's mm. here now. Mm. 
that that's telling a narrative yes. as well. Which, yes. Does that kind of bring us back to some of what we've been talking about the last yes. couple of yes. episodes? Well, I think particularly when it comes to morality. So how we've thought about it okay. is we have thought um, morality, traditionally, like if you think of those sources of power of crown, church, parliament, yep. that traditionally we've seen the church as the provider of the power. Yeah. Oh, sorry, of, of the morality, morality. Yep. right? Setting the, the moral thing. And there was yep. almost this sort of, in people's minds, this idealistic, uneasy truce or balance of power between them all. But, you know, you saw with the rise of uh, Parliament that there's a sense where uh, Parliament is um, a place where the church was then, like so part of almost what we see now is like in Australia, because of some of the tax breaks that churches and religious organisations get, there's almost a move in Parliament to limit that. Mm -hmm. So you see this interesting, there's times where, or, or say in, in Mexico, there was a, a program of declericalization where the Mexican states started pushing back on the power of the church and the, what they saw is the corruption of the church. So at different times, all of those three powers run moral programs against each other. Uh, you might have the, the, a king or a queen might call the church to account saying they become corrupt or the parliament might call, you know, the crown if it's being excessive, you know. So there, there's like a moral game as well as a power game. Yes. What I think a lot of people haven't noticed is, and when we talk about cultural war stuff, when we talk about secularization, when we talk about morality of culture, um, we may talk about sort of esoteric sort of things like, oh, Hollywood's influence on morals sure. or something like yep. this. Yep. But I think what, what a lot of people have not noticed is the primary moral driving force is now the market. Hmm. Uh, the market has more morality, more con mor moral content, uh, and this works out in two ways. So this is really key, and this sort of starts to bleed into the church. So number one, at the end of the day, there's, there's, there's a two-handed game going on. So first of all, you've got this one thing where what you've seen is in recent times, corporations running increasing moral content, and people have seen a lot of the culture war exacerbated as large corporations insert different moral programs into their advertising. Um, and often government is following that. Mm. And I think what a lot of people have gotten wrong is, our oh, government's doing this? Because all our previous understanding of study works is we've got to you know, push back on government, particularly conservatives. Um, uh, and even left in part, you know, people on the left concerned about the moral program of Ronald Reagan per se. Mm. Um, but I think what people are missing is that the primary moral driver is actually now like corporations, which is why a lot of people on the on the right are now for all of a sudden for the first time are starting to question the power of global capital. Yeah, okay. Because all of a sudden, like, oh, we were, we were fine with it when it was sort of in a Cold War context of communism versus liberal democracy. Yeah. But now they're like, oh, hang on, they're pushing stuff in my town that I don't like, and they seem to the most. So there's this interesting increasing realization on the right of um, a sense that, yes, this is some of this is not coming from the state. This is coming from, you know, and just say you're in a smaller country. What's more powerful, Google or your mid-sized country? What's mm -hmm. more powerful, Google or Australia? Mm -hmm. You know, or, you know, so, so there's that going on. Um, so on one hand, you've got sort of particularly a lot of global corporations pushing a progressive social vision. Yeah, yeah. But then there's this second more powerful thing going on where at the end of the day, the, the market's ultimately driven by profitability. That's its ultimate driver. It's organizing principle is to make profit and to, to capital is invested and there needs to be a return on capital. Yeah. Um, so what it's also doing is 
it is profit, and this is what we've been talking about with the second secularism, third individualism, crisis individualism is, it's profiting off our individual desires. Yeah. So on okay. one hand, it's like here's this social program around this rights-based issue, but then at the second time, we've seen the growth of you know big food, <laughs> junk food addiction, a pornography addiction, gambling addiction, consumerism as addiction, all, all of this very – Change, like moral program that's much more sort of primal and visceral is operating underneath the big, you know, very yeah, seemingly yeah, yeah. noble moral visions. Yes. Yeah. And so I actually think the power of, and I'm probably going to talk about this more next week, so I won't go too far into it now. But then when you align algorithms, digital AI, empower these global corporations with this, their ability to know you intimately yeah, yeah, yeah. and shape yeah. you intimately. So there's two-handed game on. One, it's the moral programs, but then it's also the moral reshaping you at a very personal level. And, and honestly, never the church, the state, uh, and the crown never had the intimate knowledge and daily interactions with you that the uh, that like contemporary big global capitalism has now in our age of algorithms. And so this is this is driving a kind of moral revolution that we have not really thought through. And and the response to that um, has sort of been, you know, like understandably, I don't look at porn. Okay. But but I don't think what we've really thought about is what what does it look like when this is only going to increase mm -hmm. and our discipleship structures need to be um, aware of this influence and our public theology needs to be aware of this influence. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And, and I think coming back to Imran, the, the first episode, you talked about this, the response to this is, has to, is just having some good habits and kind of disciplines isn't going to be enough to, as an individual, to, uh, I suppose, walk the, the narrative of, of God, of the people of God following Jesus' discipleship. You, yeah. Um, you mentioned deliverance, that this yeah. is something to um, – without going too far down that track, but I'm interested in just what, what are the implications um, as a – for the church, uh, for discipleship, um, if this is – well, this with this reality at play now? Yeah. Well, for, for, uh, as I said often, we're open sourcing this. Yeah. Like, okay. like, like we're chucking this stuff out so you guys can think well yep. and I yep. am nowhere – I don't think we are good enough to come up with all the answers for this. So expecting that this is more like forward reconnaissance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think a few things. Number one, what is the spiritual dynamics of this? Like, and what mm. scripture talks about mammon. Mm. Um, uh, you know, th there is a spiritual dynamic to this stuff, yes. you know, and there's powers and principalities. So, so that's number one. No, number two, um, I think we need a much more robust discipleship vision which engages with this reality that your people are going to be intimately undermined in their faith continually. Mm. And what's amazing is you can have someone who's like, uh, you know, the, this world has pushed them into, say, binge eating and they're really unhealthy and it's affecting their health and their and their their life. And they might go, well, I'm going to start to exercise. The minute you start to head in that direction, then all of a sudden it's going to push you to the extreme of that and all of a sudden you're obsessing around exercise. Yeah. Um, you know, like like even even we just find fascinating, like 
you know, in our family with you know, experiencing cancer now, like all of a sudden the algorithm starts to change and <laughs> push it towards things like it is ph- I'm a phenomenal about the adaptability of this thing to respond to your needs, offer you answers, but then push you into an extreme because of the profitability mechanism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need a discipleship, like we need teaching on this. I think previously our teaching was almost like, I mean, this is complete character sure, but you know, here's how faith is relevant to you and here's how to have a good life and to be a happy person. Like, like it needs to be far more robust to understanding what's going on mm. at this stage. And we need new, and maybe we'll talk about this next week, but like new discipleship structures where like if, if Wesley created this fantastic discipleship structure for the first great awakening, which was the Holy Spirit moving in first individualism, what does that look like now? What sort of structures, what sort of habits is the spirit going to do in this incredibly intrusive new environment? Yeah, okay. And it just just a quick comment there of um, just your uh, analysis, I suppose, of like the way like you, 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 you've, your habit is binge eating. And so probably your phone is throwing you up lots of notifications yeah, yeah. and your yeah. Instagram feed has ads for Uber or whatever. But then you switch, oh, actually, no, I need to, I need to exercise. And suddenly it switches to, yes, all right, here's the health app and here's yeah, yeah. The, all the kind of stuff. Navy but, SEAL, you're doing like a, you know, trying to like <laughs> work oh, man, out yeah. like a Navy SEAL. 30 days, how to go from, yeah, yeah no abs to yeah, yeah. 50 abs. To Navy SEAL Navy abs. <laughs> but both of those things, are pushing you back in on yourself. Mm. Like it's it's about you. It's forcing mm. like, um, which I think comes back to some, some of what we talked about of the mm. crisis individualism mm. um, and of the kind of crushing pressure, sense of failure when you don't, mm. don't achieve um, these things, which is also that's, uh, that's invasive for, yes. for Christians as, <laughs> as yes. well. Like, and, 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 and totally, it, it, it's it's, and this is why I think we need to really think about this yeah, well, yeah. you know. And in some ways too, like I know we, you know, we speak out all these things into the midst of a culture, you know, often can be a culture war in certain countries that we. But you know, I, I think what I what I've thought about this is it's the it's the nightmare scenario for people on the left and the right. You know, if you're on the left, uh, your whole idea is you don't want to see massive corporations rule the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're afraid of global capitalism yeah. and you want to see those oppressed by global capitalism free. Well. That's, you know, like th- this is that nightmare scenario. Global capitalism has grown, its power is immense, and it's oppressing people for profit. If you're on the right, uh, you have a sense of, you know, conserving things of value such as the family and character and morality. Well, global corporations are massively undermining that. So this is like a nightmare, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like Godzilla and King Kong have mated and had a child, you know, like, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's, it's the nightmare scenario for both. So I think- it's really important for us to start to really grapple. And this is just a, a beginning the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Um, uh, that's, that's such helpful. Like that metaphor is really helpful. And I think as as I've reflected on it, I'm like, yeah, I see that. And I noticed that. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. Um, we're going to explore kind of for more of this conversation next week. Um, so stay tuned for that. But thank you for joining us. Mm. Um those of you listening and watching, uh, but uh, yeah, we'll be back w- with you next week and I'm sure Lydia will be jumping in. And today's episode was sponsored by. <laughs> <laughs> uh, catch you next week. Mm.